Think about what you're hearing about God and what you're hearing about the people of God in this psalm. And my hope is that we'll be able to see um, three or four ways that God is at work in what's called the city of Zion. The city of Zion is another way of talking about Jerusalem in the Old Testament. And so the city of Zion or Jerusalem is uh, the focus of this psalm, but it's a secondary focus because this psalm is just as much, if not more, about the God of Zion as it is the city of Zion. And if we're uh, prayerfully considering what we're hearing in this uh, Old Testament song, we will hear about the city of Zion. I think we will be able to pay attention to our own cities and our own communities. And we will, in that process of listening to the scripture, hear about the God of Zion and our city, our communities, wherever we're from. So Psalm 48 uh, is where... We're going to go uh, for a few minutes, and if you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn to that. If you don't, um, we have the text on the screen or for the screen uh, this morning. Psalm 48, uh, the entire song, verses 1 through 14. I'll read it. How great is the Lord. How deserving of praise in the city of our God which sits on his holy mountain. It is high and magnificent. The whole earth rejoices to see it. Mount Zion, the holy mountain, the city of the great king. God himself is in Jerusalem's towers, revealing himself as its defender. The kings of the earth joined forces and advanced against the city. But when they saw it, they were stunned. They were terrified and ran away. They were gripped with terror and writhed in pain like a woman in labor. You destroyed them like the mighty ships of Tarshish, shattered by a powerful east wind. We had heard of the city's glory, but now we have seen it ourselves. The city of the Lord of heaven's armies. It is the city of our God. He will make it safe forever. And then the word interlude is there. In some, uh, some of your Bibles, the word silah is there. S-E-L-A-H. That is, a, that is a symbol for the reader, for the singer, that this is a moment of rest. It's sort of like that squiggly black line in music bars where after long notes or what have you, you rest. You take a breath, you pause, you stop. And the word silah or the interlude is a moment for us to ponder what we've already read. In every psalm or in most psalms you'll see this word and what it means is for us to pay attention to what we've just seen. And sometimes to go back and to read again what we've just seen. Verse 9 says, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love as we worship in your temple. As your name deserves, O God, you will be praised to the ends of the earth. Your strong right hand is filled with victory. Let the people 
on Mount Zion rejoice. Let all the towns of Judah be glad because of your justice. Go, inspect the city of Jerusalem. Walk around and count the many towers. Take note of the fortified walls and tour all the citadels that you may describe them to future generations. For that is what God is like. He is our God forever and ever. And he will guide us until we die. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. One of my my anchoring thoughts that will sort of set how I uh, preach this morning comes from an Old Testament theologian and scholar, Walter Brueggemann. I read Walter Brueggemann just about every time I'm going to preach or say something from the Old Testament, always when I'm working with a psalm. Uh, he has written over and over various themes uh, in the First Testament, our Old Testament, and he says of the hymn book of Israel, a rather long quote that, that may come up on the slide, that the psalms function to reveal, to authorize, and to imagine a world in which Yahweh is the key player and in which all the other players, Israel and the nations, are inescapably engaged in dialogic interaction with Yahweh, who is the Lord of the nations and the Savior of Israel. That, that the Psalms reveal, that the Psalms authorize, the Psalms imagine a world in which God is the key player. The Psalms, these, these prayers, these words that are set to music, that are incorporated in worship, purpose to reveal something about the God who is the Lord of the nations. These Psalms purpose to authorize and to create something in our imaginations about the God of the nations and the Lord of Israel. Think about that for a moment, that these, these psalms first came through Israel. We inherited them as the church, receiving these words and these hymns and these musical references, these prayers often set to music. And they are not prayers for the sake of prayers. They're not songs just for the sake of songs, but they do something to our imaginations. They do something to our hearts so that we envision a world in which everything is controlled by the one who is the Lord of all nations and the Savior of those nations. And, and I want you uh, to keep this idea of all those other nations, all people of the nations, engaging in a kind of dialogue, maybe a conflict, maybe a fight with the one behind these psalms, with the God who says, all of the nations are mine, and for you who are leaders of those nations, be in dialogue, in tension, in conflict with me, because I am who I am, which means I am the Lord of the nations. I am the Savior of Israel. 
And these words invite all of us to come and to be before this God who is the Lord, who is the Savior, who is working to reveal something about God's own self and God's own people and all of the other nations in relationship to God and God's people. These psalms are words that show us something about God. They, they, they authorize something about God's people. They do something to our imaginations so that when we walk away from these words, these beautiful, these sometimes frightening, these sometimes poetic words, we're walking away and can't get away from the God of the nations, from whether or not we're a part of the people of God or whether or not we're standing in in opposition to that God. Brueggemann says that the Psalms are words that don't just remember, but they enact. Say the word remember. Say the word enact. The Psalms, the hymns recount and they remember, but they do more than that. So that when the people of God pray these words, when the people of God, when we sing these words or when we read these passages of scripture, God who is referenced in them is not just remembered, but God is brought back before the people. God is brought back, enacted again, so that the acts and the activities of the God mentioned in these words are brought back before us, and we are before God, watching God, and hearing that God is and does what we sing, what we pray, what we say in these words, God is and God does. And this particular song of Zion says to me of four things about God, about who God is, about what God does. Those four things and then we're done. The first one is that God beautifies the city. The city of Zion, Jerusalem. The mountain and dwelling place of God. But not just Jerusalem. Not just Zion. The city you live in. My city. Chicago. Your community where you're from. God beautifies uh, the city. If you are looking at your Bible. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3 again. How great is the Lord. How deserving of praise in the city of our God which sits on his holy mountain. It is high and magnificent. The whole earth rejoices to see it. Mount Zion, the holy mountain, is the city of the great king. God himself is in Jerusalem's towers, revealing himself as its defender, this high place, this magnificent place, this place that causes the earth to rejoice. The kings of the earth uh, joins forces and advances against this beautiful city. Zion is talked about, it is said to be God's city, to be God's place to be, uh, as the original Hebrew scripture says, uh, the 
summit of the divine abode. It is the highest place where God may dwell. Zion. Notice uh, that these words, magnificent and, and, and high and holy, these words talk about a city, but they also point back to the God of the city, the God who is the defender of the city. Um, the mountain and its grandeur, the, the, the majesty and height of the holy place lead us to the words, God himself is in Jerusalem's towers. God is the defender of the city. God who is behind the beautiful city is a God who is active making that city beautiful. I came home the other night and uh, my wife was watching The Bucket List. Anybody heard of The Bucket List? You've seen this movie, a few of you. Uh, Morgan Freeman, Jack Nicholson, a few other people. And uh, the movie apparently was on loop. They just kept playing it, some kind of bucket list marathon. And um, so it became kind of the background noise to our conversation that evening over dinner. And we started talking, um, you know, eventually back to this bucket list and this idea of uh, what, you know, well, what would we want to do together? Where would we want to go uh, together? Uh, on What would we want to put on our bucket list, you know, before you kick the bucket, as it were? If you're not familiar with it, before you die, what do you want to do? Um, and so we started talking about this, and my wife, is, my wife wants to go and see all seven kinds continents, uh, including Antarctica, and I told her that she should go ahead and go. Uh, yeah, especially to Antarctica. Um, uh, and we couldn't figure out whether there are hotels on, you know, the continent. I figured, well, you know, people go down there to do research. They have to stay somewhere. Yeah, scientists, they don't just stay in ships, but who knows? She'll find out uh, maybe a long time from now, and she can tell us a long, long time from now. And, uh, and one of the things that I said to her, I said that I would try to write a list of some of the most beautiful places in the world for us to go to. And this is, you know, if you can see death coming, we all see it, but it's a long, long way, right? But when you seek death coming, if you can prepare, I would like to go uh, with my wife to some of the most beautiful places in the earth because I want those trips to build my readiness to see God. And I want to prepare by seeing the most beautiful places in this world for the God who creates beauty. And, and here's the thing, because, you know, I said that, I said, boy, I just said something. You know, said, that sounded pretty good, you know. Um, and, and I really do believe, I really feel that way. But here's, here's the thing, here's the thing. And this may be true for some of you. It's, it's almost impossible for me to see the beauty that God has created that's right before me right now. And even the exercise of talking about where we would want to go presumes that God, if we're talking about my example of beautiful places, has not made the city, the community, the neighborhood, the block where I live beautiful. 
And I think it takes a bit more work for us because the Psalms is poetic. The Psalms is pushing us to aspire uh, toward beauty, Zion, uh, uh, Jerusalem, that high and holy mountain. The, The Psalm is not telling us to look forward to going to that place, to Jerusalem uh, only, but as we apply these words, there's, there's something that has to burrow and push and push and press in us to see what God has done right where we are and where the God has placed not just ugliness but beauty in front of us. And here's the thing, uh, most of us live in places where it's easiest to see gruesomeness and ugliness and harder to see beauty. And I hope this morning for you, now there's some neighborhoods and some ways you can live in the city and you think the city is altogether beautiful. And then there are other places if you travel, just in Chicago, you get this sense that no, no, this isn't, this isn't beautiful. And for those of us who are kind of there, I hope that this word about God beautifying the city can be an encouragement to us because God never creates what God does not beautify. This morning, I hope you look uh, when you go home and say, that doesn't look so good. And that this, this reminder of God uh, beautifying the city comes back before you. Because there are at least three ways we can respond to ugliness in our neighborhoods and ugliness in our city. Or ugliness in your town if you're visiting. Maybe some of you are still here and you're not from a city. You, we could go back on the one hand and we, we might say... The the city is ugly, therefore this city or this place cannot be God's city. That's one response. That if scripture uh, builds for us a beauty and and an awesomeness and a magnificence in connection to what God has created, we can say, well, when something's ugly, God hasn't created it. That's one way. A second way we could respond is by saying, well, um, uh, God uh, has created beautiful things where I live now is ugly. And so what I'll do is I'll disengage and run away from what is ugly and move toward the beautiful city or toward the beautiful town or the beautiful neighborhood. So I'll go where Jerusalem and Zion is already magnificent and high and holy. And I'll leave those other neighborhoods, those other blocks, those other communities for somebody else. I think a third uh, response to the idea of God beautifying a city is to do uh, with Jesus and with, I think, his disciples in the Second Testament and with what the other musician in this book who says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That third response is a kingdom of God response to say where I am is ugly, but as a witness to Jesus Christ, I am claiming this place as God created and if God has created this place God beautifies what God creates and here is the thing God does not just create beautiful places uh, that are mountainous and that are green and that have spring and sometimes uh, snow capped peaks and God does not just create beauty in the natural habitat God uses you to create beauty God uses city employees to create beauty. God uses janitors and architects and farmers to create beauty. God uses artisans and carpenters. God uses teachers to create beauty. God uses you and me, what we do, to 
push the city, to push the community so that we can say, God, sometimes alone and sometimes through us, beautifies the city. A kingdom of God response is simply to say that the rule of God, the reign of God, means that God claims ugly places for himself. And that God leaves not an ugly place, not even an ugly person, ugly God beautifies us and our cities. That's one. Number two, number two. God beautifies the city and God protects the city. God protects uh, the city. The scripture says that the kings of the earth gather together. They join forces and advance the city of Zion. But when they saw it, they were stunned. They were terrified and ran away. They were gripped with terror and writhed in pain. Can you hear me tell you, and this is a reminder for most of you, that there are people, and not just institutions, but people who stand against the purpose and the plan and the activity of God. There are people who are um, against and who oppose what God is doing. And for, um, for the church and for the people of the church, for Christians and followers of Jesus, uh, unfortunately, we spend a lot of time addressing people who oppose God and God's plan. And sometimes I suppose that's um, good and necessary. But I think that the church who sometimes gets involved with people who are against God's purposes should sometimes, that we in our own lives, in our own personal lives, should sometimes leave people who are against God to be before God themselves. Because the scriptures seem to push us in the direction that there is a natural thing that happens When people who are against God face God and God's stuff. At one time, all of us, and everybody here is not a Christian, everybody here is not a follower of Jesus, but for those of you who are Christians, at one time we were all enemies of Christ. Paul talks about that. He says that we were uh, not just just non-Christian, but that we were enemies of God, that we uh, were people who were against God, and while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us, gave himself for us. When you were, for some of you, understand this language of an unsaved Sinner, when you were an enemy of God, God's grace came to you at some point. And you who lived your life as if God was your enemy started getting convinced by the perfect love of a God you hated. That's the Christian life is us being convinced of perfect love even though we're God's enemies. And at some point, you stop calling yourself an enemy of God to being a child of God. 
And, and in this text, the kings of the earth, the leaders, don't come around to calling themselves children of God. They look at the city and they fear. The scripture says they panic, they tremble. They see before them what the writer calls an ocean of shipwrecked vessels. They fear. But Israel, as it looks at the same scene, find reason to rejoice. The children of God look at what the kings and the rulers who are against God see and they find in what God has put before them a reason to rejoice. Uh, the verse 7 says that you destroyed them like the mighty ships of Tarshish shadowed by a powerful east wind. We had heard of the city's glory. But now we have seen it ourselves, the city of the Lord of heaven's armies. Israel saw the same thing that these kings saw, but they described it as the glory of the city. And, and, and that requires faith. Say that word. Say the word faith. It's the only time I'm going to get you to talk back to me, so I'll do it again. Say faith. Now, sometimes faith can be abstract, but, but faith is not abstract. Faith, uh, in this text, as we, as we look at it, is simply the ability to see uh, further than the kings and the leaders. Faith for Israel is the ability to see further than they see. It is, it is uh, as, as thick and as theological as faith can get in the New Testament. As we look at this particular verse, these verses, it is just the ability to keep looking until you see a picture that pushes you to believe that what's before you is an indicator of God. Faith is, and we're talking about hope as uh, the first theme of Advent and all of us responding to what that hope is and what hope means. And faith, hope's first cousin, is simply that ability to look at what's in front of you and to see that that situation and that problem and that shattered, shipwrecked vessel is an indicator of the presence of God. And what that does in Israel is reinforce this truth that God who beautifies the city protects the city. The scripture says that God would make the city safe forever. God, who is the Lord of Israel, the Savior, who claims Zion and every other place, secures what he claims. God protects what he creates. This is true of anything that God creates. And that is why God protects you because God made you. God claims you. And God does not, despite what you see, shipwreck, vessel, problem here or there, God protects you. The Holy Spirit sustains you. God doesn't leave you or me to ourselves, but God protects and secures us. 
The psalmist here is singing a song about the security that comes from God, the protection and safety that is found in God's hand. And somewhere along the way, contentment has to spring up in us or grow up in us so that nothing happening in you, and this is a belief that happens in your heart, that grows in your heart, that nothing happening to you, nothing happening in your life can beat the strong hand of God who protects you. Whether you realize it or not, that's why God has given you a life and a history of experiences that when you take a moment of Selah or interlude, when you pause, when you think about reasons uh, over this weekend, for example, to be thankful, you can't help but see times where you were supposed to be this or that where you were fitted for destruction in whatever way, and God protected you. God protects the city. Songwriter picked up these kinds of themes centuries after this biblical hymn was written uh, and wrote the words, When peace like a river attendeth my When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. The way we sing songs like that and hymns like that is found in the protective strong hands of God. Number three. God beautifies the city. God protects the city. God strengthens the citizens of the city. There is a very real sense in which uh, this psalm is about the city of Zion and about the geography and about the whole. But Jerusalem is not the sole object of the Lord's activity in this psalm. The people are. The individuals making up uh, the city of Zion uh, who are living in this geography. Hear the psalmist again. Oh God, as we, uh, oh God, we meditate on your unfailing love. As we worship in your temple, as your name deserves, oh God, you will be praised to the ends of the earth. Your strong right hand has filled, is filled with victory. Let the people of Mount Zion rejoice. Let all the towns of Judah be glad because of your justice. The Psalms are uh, like the blues. And some of you, some of you, one or two of you might know about the blues. Most of you all probably know about rhythm and blues. But uh, the Psalms are kind of like the blues in that uh, they they have this ability to, to connect deeply with humanness. And with what life is like. And I suppose there are other genres of music that do this too. Um, but, but, but the Psalms is the biblical genre where you get on the one hand great and deep and powerful descriptions of God closely connected with great and powerful descriptions of what it means to live. And the Psalms here are, are written, and, and, and maybe we're saying out of the depths, not just of praise, uh, but, 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 but the depths of humanity, not just the beauty. 
beauty and the holiness and the magnificence of Zion. But the junk of what it means to see a king who is advancing against that same city. Here the psalmist considers, meditates upon the unfailing love of God. And, and, and I hope, church, you get to think about God's unfailing love. I hope that you get to think about God's love and not just during a sermon, um, not just during a sermon series, not just while somebody is leading you in worship or not just while you're in worship yourself in church, but, but, but I hope you get uh, to, to walk down the street and consider the unfailing love of God. I hope either in the spring or in uh, the God We Need You winter of Chicago, you get to find a place... To think about God's unfailing love. The the love of God that never ends. Um, and, 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 And you can't be indifferent when thinking about the love of God that never ends. So, 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 so. So imagine what it means for you uh, to think about this love of God. And for the church, we need to consider God's love when we're motivated to and when we're not. When we are interested in it and when we aren't. When we're especially close to God and when God seems very, very far away. Because the unfailing love of God, the, the, the great Mercy of God is that always present grace that reminds us that we are unconditionally loved by God. It is that always present echo in your ear that God loves you despite you. The unfailing love of God is that song that will not go away. That yes, you are broken, you are wounded, you are sinful, but you are cherished, you are valuable, you are loved. The unfailing love of God is the reason we get up in the morning. It's the way we get up in the morning. And, and unless we anchor every other thing in the unfailing love of God... It's inevitable that you will be exhausted and tired and spent. No matter how much you love what you do. No matter how much you love the people around you. If you don't anchor those relationships and tasks in something that does not fail. You will fail. God uses love to give you strength. God, through the tool of love that never, ever goes away, gives us not just hope, but energy to get up and live hopefully. God, um, who beautifies the city, protects the city, and strengthens us in the city. Lastly, God shows himself. God shows God's self through the city. Back to the scripture. Go inspect 
the city of Jerusalem. Walk around and count the many towers. Take note of the fortified walls and tour all the citadels that you may describe them to future generations. For that is what God is like. He is our God forever and ever. And he will guide us until we die. Three things here in this passage, in this part of the passage. First, uh, there is an affirmation for us to go and see the city that belongs to God. For us in church today, I think it's an affirmation for us to go and see our city. My city, Chicago, most of y'all live in Chicago. I think this is an affirmation for us to go and to see uh, the windy city and not just Zion, not to take a trip to Jerusalem, but to see where we are. I think it is an invitation for us to go and to see, uh, to notice the city, to get to know the city, to familiarize ourselves with uh, the city and the city is big so maybe you can't become an expert on the entire city but maybe you can become the expert in Lakeview or Logan Square or Lawndale maybe you can become the city uh, expert in our transit system or as Grace Hahn who is not here uh, she is the restaurant expert you know she uh, I email her and say I want Italian where should I go and I was born here, and she's giving me lists, and she loves to eat. She takes pictures of food. She's the expert. And, and, and I think that the psalm is an invitation for you, for us, to be experts, if you will, in something about this city, for us to go and to see, for us to walk around, to take note, to tour the city. Number two, I think that this psalm is saying to us in one way or another that what we see and what we experience in our walks with God, in our lives with God, are meant to be given away. Sandra led us, our worship team led us in that Christmas song, Go Tell It on the Mountain, that Jesus Christ is born. The language of that song is pushing us in our back to go and speak, to go and tell about the birth of Christ. And this psalm comes and repeats a similar refrain, having us to go and to tell people because this is the point of our coming and being as the community of God. We are captured by the language in this psalm uh, that is dear, that is beautiful. And here is the thing about beauty and dearness and sweetness and love. When someone is dear to you, when something is precious to you, you can't help but naturally expose other people to it. And, and, and this psalm is, 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 is telling us about a beautiful place that is breathtaking. And unless you're scared of what people say when you talk about what takes your breath away, you can't help but tell them. If you're in Zion and you love the beauty there, take the tours so that you may describe it 
to future generations. One, one of the worst mistakes that we can make in life is cultivating an existence where we're captured by beauty, where we're captured by joy, and we never share that beauty and that joy with somebody else. That's why you naturally, and naturally is in quotes, because it's the new nature of the follower of Jesus who loves Jesus to say something about Jesus who you love. The anchor of your life, the center of your life, the one for whom you live your life can never be hidden by your life, by your speech, because that Jesus is the anchor. Scripture says, for this is what God is like. Lastly, um, not only is this, this part of this text uh, an invitation for us to give something away or to learn about our city, but it leaves us with this strong reminder that God will guide us. That last verse in the New Living Translation, which you have, uh, says that God will guide us until we die. But most translations uh, of this verse leave words like until we die out. The oldest translations, rather. They take those last words away. Words like forever, or words like on and on, or God will guide us until the end of our lives. Most of those are not in the oldest uh, manuscripts of scripture. And I wonder if we can read that verse with or without those words and sit with them, not pushing it off to some future moment, but bringing it close to our lives right now that he will guide us. plain point that doesn't take much explanation is that God will guide us. Andy, come on back, Sandra, every day uh, through the junk of our lives, through the joys of our lives, God will guide us when the holidays come and when the holidays go. God will guide us when we feel especially close to Jesus when we grieve the loss of someone who is not here, who was here at that last holiday, God will guide us. When we look forward and when we can't help but look backward, God will guide us. This morning, I think that's, that's the only way with that songwriter we can, we can sing in hope that that. All and it is well. I'm going to ask you just to to sit with some of these things that I've said for a moment. And then I'm going to invite you uh, by response to sing. And for some of you, this will be an act of faith. Some of you are here and you, you know, you don't necessarily believe words to songs like when peace like a river attendeth my way, whatever, whatever, whatever. Whatever it is well. Some of you, some of you aren't quite there. And for you, it will be a step of faith to sing this, to lend your voice to this song. And for others of you, you hear these words and you say, yes, this is how I hope. Yes, God, you are the defender of the city. Yes, God, you do strengthen me. It is well.
So church, sit for a moment and reflect on these truths. So, Lord, we pray at the end of this song and at the end of this service that you would, in your own voice, sing those words over and over to your church this week. That, Lord, as we leave and as we go to our communities, to our homes, to our cities, that you would remind us that what we see is an indicator that it is true, it is well. God, as we live this week, would you remind us as followers of Jesus that we follow and we live for a Lord who renews and restores everything that we see and that we sing those songs, not just in faith and not just in hope, but because those words are true. God, as we live this week and as we talk to friends and loved ones, would you remind us that when they are broken and when we are hurting with them, that it is well. Remind us, God, throughout this time of Advent, this time of waiting, this time of hope, that the healing and the health and the the wellness that we need comes from you and that our hope is, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This week, God, be the God of our lives, the God of our souls, the keepers of our hearts. We pray these things as your church. We believe these things as your disciples. We say these things and declare these things, knowing and believing in the strong name of Jesus. And we, God, say it is well. It is well with our souls. Be our God. Be our keeper. Be the one who keeps it well in our hearts, who keeps things well in our souls. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Let all of God's people say amen. Amen. If you believe that it is well with your soul, would you, would you close this service by applauding God this morning and thanking God this morning? Hallelujah. Amen. Have a great week, everybody. Have a great week. See you next week. See you next week.